Good morning and welcome in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're gathered here to worship the true and living God and that is good news. Uh, Just a couple of announcements that we need to make as we get started. Uh, Today, right after our morning worship, we're asking all of our communing members to uh, stay for a few minutes. So we'll give about five minutes or so after the worship ends for people to settle or go get kids out of nursery, whatever you need to do. But uh, please, for a congregational meeting, uh, plan to stay for just a few minutes after our worship. Our youth uh, is having their regular meeting tonight at 7 o'clock in the Family Life Building in our Summer Bible Club, which has taken a couple weeks off with VBS and uh, people being out of town. It resumes this Wednesday uh, at 11 in the morning. Our women have an opportunity on July 16th to be part of our Presbyteries Women's Fellowship. If you can uh, make that, I think you'll find it interesting. Uh, you can get in touch with uh, Midge uh, Davis. She can help you with any of the details that you need. Our joy group is planning something for August 4th. You can, uh, again, read about that here in the bulletin. And uh, more details will be coming as we get a little closer. I'd like to ask you for a moment here before we start our worship formally, to take a second to gather your mind and your heart, to remember that we have a great privilege to be in the presence of God, that He meets with us, and He is worthy of our worship. Would you take just a moment to to get your heart prepared to worship, to sing, to recognize, and to honor the one living and true God?
the famous pastor R.C. Sproul would teach that if God is not sovereign over everything, over every detail, over every molecule of the universe, if he is not sovereign over everything, then he would not be God. And it is this God who is sovereign over all things who invites us to worship him this morning. So would you please stand for our call to worship from Isaiah chapter 45. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me there is no God. I equip you though you do not know me. That people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Would you join me in worshiping God with hymn number 130, Showers of Blessing. Let's worship together. God, it is not only actual rain that we so desperately need, but we need you and your blessings. God, we come here to worship you and to receive from you all that you would give us by your good measure. Holy Spirit, would you be with us this morning as we worship? 
Would you open our ears to hear your word in a new way, in a way that challenges us and causes us to love others, perhaps in ways in which we did not know we could. God, we love you. We pray that all that we do this morning would honor and bless you, that our worship and singing and listening uh, and our, uh, even our, our thinking and contemplating would be for your glory and for our good. Would you lead us now in the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples how to pray? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. If you would take your bulletin, we are going through the Heidelberg Catechism as a way to confess what we believe Scripture teaches us about God, about our world, and about ourselves. And before we uh, read these questions and responses, I'll read the second commandment. As we're going through the Ten Commandments, I'll read from Exodus chapter 20, and then we'll, I'll ask you the question, and you can respond in the bold print. This is from Exodus 20, starting at verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. What does God require in the second commandment? We are not to make an image of God in any way, nor to worship him in any other manner than he was commanded in his word. May we then not make any image at all? God cannot and may not be visibly portrayed in any way. Creatures may be portrayed but God forbids us to make or have any images of them in order to worship them or to serve God through them. You may be seated. <clears throat> if, uh, if you were to be invited to an audience of, uh, you know, the Queen of England or the President or someone who has authority and important roles, you'd be told the protocol. Here's what you can expect. Here's what you're to do. You'd be given steps. And, of course, we would think that is perfectly normal. And we would certainly comply with them and be able to tell people, I was in this room with so-and-so. Well, in some ways, the second commandment shows us these are, this is the protocol to come into the presence of God. And I think sometimes we will focus on, you know, what not to do, don't do this, don't do that. But there is implied and hidden a great grace in the second commandment. Here it is. You get to come into the room with God, the living God, the God of heaven and earth who made space and time, who holds stars in his hand, who calls them each by name. And because of his great power, not one is missing this great and awesome God says to you and me, here's how you're to come to me. 
but he really is saying, come to me. So when we go in this moment of prayer, we can recognize that we get to come to God, but we come to a real God, not one of our imagination, not one who, who shapes to what we expect him to be, a real and existing God who is out there and who is coming close to us and inviting us to him. But we come to him as he has revealed himself, as he has shown himself in the scripture. We come to this God and interact with him really and truly as we are and as he is. And so we're not free to imagine him in some way or to craft a way for us to think about him apart from the way he's revealed himself. That's why there are no images. That's why we have a fairly plain room. Because we come to God in spirit and in truth. And as we go in this moment of prayer, I want to ask you to do two things. One, to recognize the great privilege and give thanks to God that we come to him and he is near us. But two, be able to say, God, here are ways that I have tried to, to reshape you in the way I want you to be rather than the way you reveal yourself to be, to confess how we want to come to God on our terms instead of his, and to trust that in spite of that, he still welcomes us into his presence. We receive his kindness and grace even where we are sinners. Would you take just a moment in private, individual prayer to bring your heart as it is to the one God who is really here? And then after a few moments, I'll lead us in corporate prayer. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you have invited your children to come and to draw near to you. And you have laid very few restrictions on us. You did not prescribe a, a ritual or a set of steps to follow. You didn't say, here's what time to come or what kind of building to use. He didn't declare what kind of clothes to wear or how we should wear our hair. What you did say was to come in spirit and in truth, to come in humility, and to come in faith to the one God who is really there, and not to create some imagination of who you might be according to our own desires. And yet that is precisely what we do. We want you to be a God who will come and bless the, the steps we desire to take. We want you to come and be a God who will give us the, the, the comforts and entertainments and accomplishments that we have set our mind on for you to bless our little attempts to build a kingdom for ourselves rather than to come to you as the king and to build your kingdom in humble service true obedience 
and humility. Father, we acknowledge that though you have put on us very few restrictions on how to come to you, we still can't do it. And so we come to you now knowing that we want to come to you truly. We ask for your help, for you to forgive our sins, to cleanse us of every unrighteous thing, of every unrighteous thought, of every way in which we have made you to be like us, the creature, instead of the transcendent, awesome God who provokes fear and awe and wonder and love and mercy. Father, we pray that you would help us in all of our weaknesses, that you would help us to bear under afflictions or disappointments or illness, loss of wealth, difficult relationships, that you would bear, help us bear under those in, in, and do so for your honor to come to you with our afflictions, trusting you to help us endure them. Our prayers that you might clear them, give us relief, help us to wait patiently until you do so. And we know, God, that we will share in all the blessings of Christ his victory over sin and death and a day is coming when all will be glory and all will be beauty and there will be no more rebellion not in us and not outside of us and all will be your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And on that day, we will bow our knees and acknowledge Jesus as Lord with every other voice on your planet. And be glad. But now, God, we recognize that there is rebellion. There is heartache. There is affliction. There are these scars of sin. And we share in the cross of Jesus. We carry the cross you have asked us to carry. We want to do so following Christ and believing it is worth all that we give up. That you will give to your children 30, 60, or 100 fold of all that we lose for Jesus' sake. God, give us this grand vision of eternal life and of hope in Christ, of the knowledge of Him. Father, we pray that you would come near to us during this service. That to those of us who are altogether comfortable, you would help us see more acutely our need of Christ to sorrow over our sin and to receive him with joy. To those of us who are hurting and bringing our fears and anxieties and disappointments, our temptations, our guilt and our shame, we pray that you would heal and lead us away from temptation and toward that which is good. Father, I pray that you would knit us together in affection and love, that you would support and sustain your church in all things, and that we would know that whatever circumstances prevail among us, we still come to the true and living God, and we worship the God who is there and sufficient for us in all of our need. Father, we pray that you would be pleased in this service to accomplish your purposes, to support and grow and nurture your church, 
and to be pleased with our worship, which is weak and impure, but in the power of your Spirit and purified by Jesus, we offer it to you as a pleasing aroma. We love you and we trust you. Help us to obey you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. In 2 Corinthians 9, it says this, He who supplies seed for the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for all your generosity, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. God who provides for you has provided for you not only for your needs, but for your generosity so that many might give thanks to him. Would you exercise your generosity in faith as we take up tithes and offerings?
Please pray with me. Lord, we give because you teach us that it's good um, and that it blesses your church and that you use our tithes and offerings um, to do great things, things that oftentimes we won't even see or know about. And so, Lord, we trust you and entrust our money to you, and we ask that you would use it for your glory, uh, for the help of those in this church and in our town, to support our missionaries and all the different things that you are doing through us. God, we thank you for your blessings and the ways that you have been kind to us uh, with work, uh, with family, um, and we ask that you would continue to bless us. We thank you for this opportunity to give. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Would you remain standing, and we'll continue in worship with singing hymn number 38, Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise. Let's keep worshiping together. Please be seated. You turn in your Bibles to Psalm 37. Psalm 37. We are spending our summer looking at these psalms uh, for every occasion. And mostly what we've seen are psalms that help us uh, draw out emotions we find in our soul toward God. So psalms for exhilaration and joy, for thanksgiving, psalms for sadness, uh, psalms for fear. Uh, This psalm is a psalm for wisdom. Have you ever seen someone doing something that you knew was foolish? And you're watching it happen, and you're like, this is about to be a train wreck. You know, all right, so you see someone who, who just speeds past you on the road, and you're like, ah, oh, that's going to be trouble. And then, you know, a mile or two later, 
you see that car pulled over on the side of the road, blue lights flashing behind it, trooper walking up beside, and you go, could have told you that was likely to happen. All right, you've seen it. You ever been the person doing something foolish that other people were watching going, I don't know, that's going to be trouble. In fact, truth be told, the reason you recognize it in others is because, you know, you were the person doing it at one point. Sometimes wisdom only comes with age and experience. I can only learn it if I go through it. But sometimes we want to be able to receive wisdom from others. And this psalm, a psalm of David, is when he is old. And now he is about to tell you, hey, here's a place where I watch a lot of people go in a foolish way. And I want to protect you from it. I want you to hear it from me instead of learning it from experience. A psalm to gain wisdom, to address our hearts. So Psalm 37, now it's a little bit longer than most of our psalms, but I'd like to read all of it. Before we do, let's pray. O God in heaven, wisdom usually comes for us with a painful lesson because we find that we only get it by acting foolish and discovering the the dangers. So give us humble hearts as we come to this scripture and learn from the wisdom that you gave David and inspired in these words that we could learn wisdom and practice it and avoid foolishness. Have mercy on us. Your naturally foolish people turn us away from our tendency to be on our own and to trust ourselves and to act in wisdom, to lean not on our own understanding, but in all our ways, acknowledge you and you will direct our paths. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 37, verse 1. This is God's word. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him, and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourselves over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. The Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend the bows to bring down the poor and needy. They slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. 
For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, and the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, they have abundance, but the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. The wicked borrows but does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. I have been young and now am old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously, and his children become a blessing. Turn away from evil and do good, so shall you dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, and the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. The Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree, but he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. Mark the blameless, and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace, but transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in a time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in Him. This is God's Word. It's completely true, and it's utterly trustworthy. I think there are three big threats to a sustained, enduring, and fruitful faith. Jesus identifies a couple of them in a parable, famous parable where he tells the parable of, of a sower, a guy who's scattering seed on the ground. He describes one where people respond to the message like a, a seed that, that fell in shallow soil. And in the shallow soil, the, there's a little bit of apparent life that springs up, but it's, it's shallow. And then it says that the sun beats on it, and, and then it dries up before it ever bears fruit. Now, Jesus explains what he means by that metaphor. He says, uh, we'll quote here, tribulation or persecution come. That's like the, the sun that dries up this plant with no root. When a person who sort of is dabbling in faith begins to experience tribulation or persecution, when there's sorrow, affliction, it comes as a huge disappointment. The expectations were, I'm God and I'm doing the right thing. I expect it to work out, and then it doesn't. And so it, it, it wrecks this person's faith. It, 
It destroys it because it was a shallow faith. There's another uh, way that Jesus describes a big threat to faith. He, he says in this one, it's like some seeds that were scattered fell into ground where there were weeds. And the weeds and the thorns come up and they choke the life out of the, the baby plant. And Jesus describes that one as um, <clears throat> cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. If the first problem, the big threat to faith, is affliction and difficulty, this is prosperity. It's success and advancement. It's gaining honor and approval of men. It's life working out. And that very working out becomes the, the driving force in a person's life, and it draws a person away from faith before faith can ever be fruitful. They're dabbling in faith, but it doesn't become their thing. And so this kind of worldly care and concern dominates. So affliction can dominate faith, and worldly concerns can dominate faith. The, the third one, which isn't part of Jesus' parable, but is definitely all through the Bible, is when God doesn't seem to right the ship. He's just taking too long, because I watch, and, and it's the righteous who are giving that affliction, which threatens their faith, and it's the wicked who are prospering and doing well, and as a person who's trying to be faithful to God, I look at it and I go, that doesn't seem right. Sure, God's going to do something about that pretty soon. And then you wait, and time goes on, and prayers about the situation keep getting kind of, well, apparently unheard. And the waiting and the sense of injustice, and I start to go, well, what should I do about this? Is God going to do something? Is he even there? Is he paying attention? Does it matter how I live? And now I begin to see my faith challenged by this other big threat. These are three enormous threats, and almost all of us experience it. And David is saying, all right, you, I know that threat. I know what you're experiencing. Don't be foolish. You go around the bend, and there's a trooper waiting for you. Don't be foolish. It is foolish to just look at those immediate concerns. You have to see something much bigger. And so he says, I have wisdom for you. If you've ever felt affliction and it's made you go, what does this say about my faith? And if you've ever seen, uh, you know, this ambition in your heart for worldly concerns and it's challenging your faith. And, and if you've ever watched injustice in the world simply not get addressed by God and it's challenged your faith, David says, I have wisdom. The f now, he writes this poem, this psalm, not in a, a kind of orderly, logical fashion. He's actually writing it kind of by the alphabet. So the first couple of verses start with the Hebrew A and then the next couple with B and so forth. And so it feels like a jumble, but he has some themes that are running through it, and I want us to look at them. One, he says, I want you to turn away from the short take. All right, what I mean by that is take a picture, and I look at it, and I go, 
this is what's real. He says, I want you to, to turn away from that immediate look. And then I'm going to try to tell you why you should do that or give you some motivation for it, how you can turn away from the immediate. And then when we get past that, I want to tell you what you turn toward, toward what's really good. All right, so turn away from the short take. In that first verse, he starts with this. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Now, he understands right off that we watch a lot of evil happen, and it seems like the evil people... And in a lot of places, just kind of prosper. Politicians who do things that that just serve themselves or put other people in harm's way, and we go, why is God letting that happen? Wealthy people who take advantage of the poor or people who just demand their own way at the expense of others. We see it, and psalmist says, me too. But don't fret. Fretting is uh, kind of like being anxious. One, one scholar translated this verse, don't get burned up. It's like you see this injustice happening and it lights a fire inside you. Now, your fire that's inside you doesn't burn the guilty. It just burns you. And so this psalmist is saying, let's act in wisdom here. Don't get burned up. And you know that idea of fretting and getting burned up starts early. Imagine a three- or a four-year-old child who's sharing a cookie with the older sibling. And the cookie breaks, not evenly. And the older sibling takes the bigger cookie. And what do they say? You already know. That's not fair. Now, I never taught any of my children to say that's not fair. And you didn't either. And yet they learn it so fast. This idea of fretting and being anxious about the injustice starts really early. And when it takes over, that that fire, that getting burned up, it turns from just fretting into envy. Verse 1, be not envious of wrongdoers. You look at them and you go, They don't seem to care. They don't do what is right. They don't make any sacrifices, and yet things are going just fine for them. What good is it? What's the profit in my acting righteously and in faith? Don't envy. And it doesn't just stop with envy. Look at verse 8. Refrain from anger, forsake wrath. There it is again. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. I look at the anger and wrath and say that, that seems like the right response to these wicked things that are happening, to the evil that's prospering in the world. And I'll be honest, the reason I want to feel angry and, and burn in wrath is because it looks to me like God isn't. And I think He should. And now what you're getting the psalmist is telling you is, hey, that idea of fretting and burning, of anxious thoughts and meditating on it and letting it become something that that occupies you, really what you're saying is, God, you're not doing it, so I will. I'm going to put myself in the place of God who's 
not doing it correctly, my envy, my anger, my wrath, this burning inside is really my critique of God. And the psalmist says, that is the path of foolishness. So, it's one thing for me to tell you, stop fretting. Let me tell you how you can deal with that impulse to fret and to grow angry and seek revenge and wrath. We really just need a new perspective on this picture we've taken, this immediate moment where I've done analysis of what's going on around me and I think this isn't right. I need a new perspective. Uh, Ralph Davis tells one of his famous World War II stories. Now, he wasn't in World War II, but he, he reads about it. And the story he tells is of Captain Moffat Burris. Now, if you haven't heard of him, he wrote some memoirs in about 2000 where he told stories of his wartime, and some of them were really fascinating. It was in an airborne company that was so successful that Germans um, nicknamed them the Devils in the Baggy Pants. And he had a couple of great, I mean, he had great stories. Well, king of them all, of his stories, was that the Allied forces had gotten to the Elba River, and the Russians were coming from the eastern side, and they were, you know, closing in on Berlin to occupy it. And General Eisenhower, commander of the Allied forces, told the American forces and the others that were with them to stop at the river and let the Russians take over. So they were just sitting there. And Captain Burris, just kind of on a personal whim, hops in his jeep with a lieutenant and a sergeant, three people, in a jeep, and they start heading into that contested area that General Eisenhower told them not to do. And he had a white flag up on his jeep, and he runs over. He gets about 40 miles away from anyone that would be you know, his company, and he comes over a hill, and there is an entire uh, panzer division of the German army, 15,000 German soldiers. Burris drives up and meets their commanding officer, and he says to them, I'm here to accept your surrender. And the German, you know, is like, what are you talking about? Ah, there are three of you. Burris says, yes, but behind you are the Russians. And you destroyed their land, you ravaged their people, you committed atrocities in Russia. And do you think when you surrender to them, and you will, that they will be kind to you? I'm here to accept your surrender three-star German general goes back, consults with people, and then comes back and hands him his pistol. 15,000 surrendering to three makes no sense until you catch that bigger picture and you catch the real perspective. And that's what this psalmist would have you do. Come see the real thing. That picture you take in the moment is not as real as you think it is. This psalm, on numerous occasions, says you have to put alongside what you notice in the moment, the injustice, your affliction, their prosperity. When you see it, bring alongside it the promises of God. And he gives you two promises. He gives it to you over and over again. Uh, 
I wrote them down here. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven times in this psalm, he talks about what God is going to do to the wicked. They will fall. Despite all the prosperity, despite all the success that you see, the wicked will not stand. I'm not going to read to you all 11, but you've got to see a couple. Start in verse 2. They, these wrongdoers, will soon fade like grass and wither like the green herb. A few weeks ago, I had a flat tire in my lawnmower and it cut a little low on the grass. And now there are brown spots because grass fades fast. That's the image he wants you to have in your head. Grass, it just withers It doesn't last long. That's the wicked. Look at verse 12. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked for he sees the day is coming. All of this gnashing of teeth and scheming and plotting and wielding power in this life. God says, I see where this is going. And he chuckles. You know the way when... uh, A toddler gets so mad at his parents and he's like, I'm going to, you know, explode. And the parent goes, this should be funny. God isn't threatened. His justice will prevail. Verse 14, the wicked draw this sword and bend the bows. They bring down the poor and the needy to slay those whose way is upright. But ultimately, their sword shall enter their own heart. Their very schemes will turn back on them. Look at verse 20. The wicked will perish. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. Their prosperity is short-lived. Do you envy that? Is that what you would like? Prosperity that lasts for a moment the way smoke does. Verse 35. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree, but he passed away, and behold, he was no more. For uh, David, in his life, he came across Nabal. Nabal was a man of wealth and prosperity, and David and his men took camp there and protected them from bandits and never stole anything. They were just generous with their power their sword to protect Nabal and his family. And when the time, Nabal never asked for this. So when the time of harvest came, they said, hey, we've protected you. Would you mind sharing a little bit of your wealth with us? And Nabal said, I don't owe you anything. Well, Nabal, David was determined to kill him. And it was only interrupted providentially by Nabal's wise wife, Abigail. And then Nabal himself dies. God took his life. David's here. I, I saw a wicked man prospering, spreading, looking great. And now I can't find him anywhere. Now, that's a metaphor for the greater purpose of God. The day is coming when there will be no wicked to find anywhere. And the only thing that prevails are God's people. The first promise, put it in your head, all the wicked prosperity will end. And God, second promise, will support his faithful. 
wrote it down. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. And I think I missed a couple. Twelve times in this psalm, David talks about how God supports them. I won't read them all, but you have to read a few. Verse five. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Isn't that what you really want? Don't you want it to be demonstrated to everyone that it was worthwhile to be faithful to God? And right now, probably by many, you look foolish, giving yourself to God, obeying his ways, denying yourself things, wasting your Sunday morning doing things like this. It looks foolish to plenty of people. And yet, here is God saying, just wait. Your righteousness, which is a little humorous if you think about it, because how righteous are we really? Your righteousness will shine like the noonday sun. This thing that I have the tiniest ounce of that because God's been gracious to me to give any at all is going to one day be the only thing you notice about each other. God will make sure that it happens. Look at verse 17. The arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. Verse 23. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he will not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. Even if you stumble, believer in Christ, God will make sure that even your stumbling doesn't destroy you, but that he lifts you back up. He comes alongside and says, let's try again. And he puts you back on your feet. It's one thing to think that maybe there's somebody out there who could get me, but God will protect him. God says, I'm protecting you from you, your own stumbling. Look at verse 25. I have been young and now am old. I have not seen the righteous forsaken. Are children begging for bread. God provides. Look at verse 28. The Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever. Here's what God is saying to you. No matter what happens around you, no matter what threat your faith experiences, no matter how strong the affliction, how powerful the ambition, no matter how long you must wait, when you feel your faith threatened, he says, but I'm holding on to you and I'm holding you up. Years ago, actually, for, this has happened plenty of times and I've, I've been talking to people who are saying, I'd like to be a member of the church. And I say, well, tell me about how you came to faith and about your life with Jesus. And so they'll start telling me their story. And always somewhere in it, they're like, and I don't think I would have survived that if it weren't for Jesus. And I got to tell you, I used to think, well, yeah, of course. Now I think that's one of the most mature things someone can say. Jesus upholds your faith. And if it was left to you and me, we probably wouldn't make it, but he's strong. And he won't let even your falls take you. Look back again at verse 25 and 26. He says, not that you won't experience trouble, but he says, I've never seen the righteous forsaken not that you won't fall, you just won't ever be alone. 
And he says the children don't go begging for bread. It's not really that he's never seen these saints and believers not have enough food, but he's basically saying God provides you enough in the moment. Daily bread. The necessities you need to keep trusting in him. And in verse 39, the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. It's not that you won't find trouble, but that he's a stronghold. He helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. God makes this promise that when you feel that threat, you can come to him and say, God, my faith is weak. Help. And he's a shield. So he asks you, he tells you, here's how you respond to that. Now, I'll be very brief, but this is what you turn toward. What's really good? In verse 3, he says, Trust the Lord and do good. To trust the Lord is to do good. Verse 6, it's to practice righteousness. Because we look and we say, I know how this all turns out. I can see the end from the beginning. And so here, when it doesn't look like any kind of righteousness or doing good will reward me, I see and I trust that God is paying attention now when I don't see it with my eyes. He gives an example of this in verse 21. The wicked borrows but does not pay back. The righteous is generous and gives. You and I, we tend to want to think that money is a a shield and a protector. But the righteous person who trusts in God says, I can give this away because I've seen something better than what money can give me. What is the thing that's better? In verse 4, he tells you, delight yourself in the Lord. When you try to imagine me telling someone, delight yourself in doing the dishes. You might go, okay, that's pretty challenging. God says, delight yourself in the Lord precisely because he is genuinely delightful. It's not impossible. To see him clearly is to really enjoy him. But look what it says. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. He will satisfy this. Delight yourself in riches, in prosperity, in ambition. No promise you'll ever get satisfied. Probably you won't. Most people I find that have those ambitions, sometimes they reach them and still aren't satisfied. God says, delight yourself in the Lord. He's really delightful. You can enjoy him and you will be satisfied. In fact, here's the thing. Delight in him so much. Make your desire as big as heaven itself and you still won't have desired him enough. He will satisfy you. He will give you the desires of your heart. Wisdom sees the emptiness of what is passing and the wealth of what is lasting. Wisdom sees the emptiness of what is passing and the wealth of what is lasting. God himself says, look at me, delight in me, and I will satisfy you. Now, what would that look like right here? Look at verse 16. Better is a little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. 
what it looks like to trust God, to delight in Him, is to be content. To be content because you already have more wealth than all the world could give you. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that would be a present far too small. Love, so amazing, so divine, demands my heart, my life, my soul, my all. To be content because you have this eternal promise in Jesus that he will not just punish the wicked and get rid of evil, He will not just sustain your faith. He will give to you your heart's greatest desire. Now, I want you to imagine this contentment is actually real power. It is enormous power. What would it be like when you hear news about the economy or politics that seems to rattle others? And you go, I'm grieved and I'm sad, but I'm not rattled. It can't touch what I value most. You become a rock. You become someone who says, I already have all that my heart can ever really desire, and no one can touch it. And so whatever happens around me can be difficult, can be challenging, can be sad, but it cannot shake you. It can't rattle you. Because you have in your possession what your heart desires most. And in the future, you're only going to get more of Jesus. Trust in the Lord. Do good. Delight in Him. And then you can never be disappointed. Would you pray with me? Our God in heaven, we do pray that you would show us the treasure we have in Jesus Christ and help us to gain the perspective of eternity and delight in the living God so that we can turn away from this immediate flash of life in front of us. Father, we pray you'd give us wisdom to follow and enjoy and trust Jesus. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. As you turn in your hymnals to hymn 546, the sands of time are sinking, and let's sing this song about our eternal gift of the living God. Let's stand and sing 546.
Uh, as we approach the benediction, God's blessing, we're reminded that the, we will experience suffering and affliction, but that even that must serve God's purposes, and He will sustain us. As we come to this benediction, I also would like to remind you that if you are a communing member of the church, we're going to have a, a congregational meeting. I'd ask you to stay for that. Uh, if uh, you need to leave, we're going to give about five minutes or so after we've finished, before we start. And if you've got children in the nursery, we're asking you to go ahead and get them. We expect the meeting to be short. Receive the blessing of God on the authority of His Word. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen.